0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, would you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We are in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. We have been journeying through the book of Hebrews since November. Uh, We're in this great, rich chapter, this chapter of faith. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7 today. As the author goes from his introductory, uh, his introduction in the verses, verses one, two, and three, to now, he's going to begin to settle down. He's going to draw our attention to three different historical figures from the book of Genesis and their sort of case studies in faith. We're going to we're going to we're going to gaze for a few moments this morning at Abel, at Enoch, and at Noah, and we're going to try to unpack these case studies in faith, and then see how it is that the faith walk they modeled might influence the way in which we seek to walk in faithfulness with God. So, Hebrews 11. Let's read together verses 4 through 7. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died— he still speaks. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was found because God had, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I want you to pay attention, if you would, to what we read in verse 6. Now, as the author is speaking about these three case studies in faith, he's speaking about Enoch, but he's also making a general statement to his audience in verse 6, where he says, "...without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." That's a commentary on the life of Enoch, but it's it's also a point of application or a point of contemplation for the audience. So if you're an underliner or a highlighter, I would encourage you to underline without faith it is impossible to please him or to please God. And this is, as we're going to look at this from a variety of different perspectives today, at the end of the day, that's what I believe is the underlying theme of of these handful of verses. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, we were doing this thing at Heritage. We call it Summit Saturdays. It's been really fun to see the people that God brings uh, each month as we climb a different summit in southern Oregon. We, we started with Roxy Ann We did Grizzly Peak. And then yesterday, we were out at Pilot Rock. And a bunch of folks showed up. I think 20-plus people showed up to climb Pilot Rock. I was really surprised. And, you know, I'm gathering with all these men and women in the parking lot. And there's some 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 children, some students, and some adults, and some older adults. And, and I'm kind of just giving a quick, hey, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk down the trail, yada, yada, yada. It gets a little uh, hairy uh, in the in the last part of the climb. And uh, we prayed, and we started walking, and, and just people followed. And I was thinking, like, you guys really trust me, don't you? You really Trust me, for those that have never been here, you're just following me on the trail, like, just having faith that I know what I'm doing. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, you know I confessed in church like three weeks ago that I lie all the time to the people I'm leading when I'm hiking, and you're just following me. But one of the interesting things that happened yesterday is we're in the parking lot, and I'm trying to give an honest assessment of what— how many here have climbed Pilot Rock? Raise your hand if you've climbed that, that mountain. So it's this old volcanic plug where the, that's kind of, all that's left is this big, this big volcanic rock that kind of sticks up at like 5,000 feet plus uh, right on the California southern Oregon border. And the last little push to the top, there's this, this open book crevice you have to climb through, and it can get a little bit, you know, if you're not used to that kind of thing, it can get a little bit uncomfortable. And so I was trying to warn everybody and, that, hey, it's going to get hard. It's scary. You have to use both hands, both feet, and we're going to have to hoist and offer hands to get people up. And, and this, this young lady named Adeline Quilliam, she was there, and she, I think, looks at her dad and says, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and her dad's like, I think you should do it. I think it's going to be okay if you try it. I think you shouldn't say no now. I think you should do it. She's like, I'm not going to do it. I, I just don't think I'm going to do it. And I'm like, Yeah, just wait. Maybe we'll get there and you'll figure it out. And we got there and we get all the way up to this really uh, scary spot. And it was really cool to see Adeline walk up. And I saw her overcome some fears. And she trusted and believed that it was going to be okay, that she was going to get through it. And she endured. And she got through this really scary spot on the climb. She scrambled her way to the top and got the great payoff of these panoramic views of... Northern California, and Southern Oregon. And I was thinking about the way in which our life of faith often unfolds. You know, sometimes I think we might have pie in the sky thinking that if we do this life of faith, it's the blessings of God, and there's not going to be any challenges. But any of us who've walked with God for any length of time, we simply know that's not true. We know that's not true. And yet, God meets us in those challenges. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Our faith grows in those moments. And I was thinking about warning Adeline that it's going to get really bad. It's going to be very scary. You're going to think you're going to die. But you're going to get through it. You're going to be all right. I warned her. And she got there. And she was ready. And she did it. And this is just analogous of our faith journey often. I think of the, the different men that we're looking at today in our passage. You know, we've got Abel. We've got Enoch. And we've got Noah. And in each case, sort of the backdrop of the life of these men was difficulty. It was wickedness. It was darkness. They they did not live in pristine, easy situations and settings. And they all faced challenges of their own kind, but they had this faith, this forward-looking faith. Remember what the author said in verses 1 uh, of chapter 11. He kind of gives us a, a brief description of faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then the author goes on to say, for by it for by faith people of old received their commendation He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. So so faith is this forward-looking hope. It's a conviction of things unseen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. We unpacked that last week. And verse 2 says that the people of old received their commendation through their faith. And so now, as we get into verse 4, and really through the chapter, we begin to look at some of these case studies in faith of people who walk by faith who receive the commendation of God. So, what the author is doing here, he's giving us examples in Abel and Enoch and Noah. Turn back to the pages of Genesis, we can read the narrative backdrop of their lives. We've got to remember the original audience, too. Remember, as we've said a bunch of times in this series, this audience, these were, were men and women who were raised in Judaism and they had converted to Christianity, so they knew the Old Testament. And so as the author begins to talk about Abel and Enoch and Noah, I mean, these were so ingrained in their foundation, in their worldview, just woven into their education. They they knew the stories of these men frontwards and backwards. They were like nursery rhymes on steroids for the people of God. And so this original audience would have heard these names, and they probably would have had in their heart the sense that I I know this story. You know, like when you're watching a movie you've seen 15 or 20 times, it's easy to kind of just zone out because you kind of know how the story unfolds, and that maybe there was a temptation in this original audience when the author begins to talk to them about these, oh yeah, I, I know the story of Enoch, next topic. I, I know Abel, I know the story I memorized, I know the story of Noah, come on. Can we talk about something a little bit more deep? But the author has some new things to share with them. God, by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, gives the author of Hebrews some insight into how to interpret and offer commentary to these well-known stories. So, that being said, look with me again at verse 4. This, this description of the faith of Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, his brother, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, Abel died, yet he speaks. We know that Abel was killed in jealous rage by his brother Cain over Cain's offering, not being met with the regard of God and Abel's. You can go back to Genesis chapter 4. We can read the backdrop to the, to the story of Abel. Not a ton of biblical content the, about Abel, but we have the story of Abel in Genesis chapter 4. He was the little brother to Cain, the, first, the second generation, uh, parent, uh, direct children of Adam and Eve. Let me read you the first few verses of Genesis chapter 4 so we get the backdrop here. It tells us Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then she bore his brother Abel, And ultimately, this jealous rage ended up being a murderous rage, and Cain took the life of his brother. Now, that word regard is an interesting word in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and yet for Abel's big brother Cain, the Lord had no regard. What's that word mean? If you just look at just the English translations, it gives us sort of a, it rounds out how to think of this word. One translation says the Lord had respect unto Abel. Another says the Lord looked with favor on Abel. One says the Lord accepted Abel and his gift. But as to Cain, the Lord had no respect. Or the Lord did not look with favor upon Cain and his offering. Or the Lord did not accept Cain and his gift. And so the author here is giving us this perspective of Abel's faithfulness. And in Abel, the acceptance of the offering was evidence of God's acceptance of the person. So here's the first thing I want you to write down. The first glimpse of a case study in faith. Those who please God are faithful in their worship. Those who please God are faithful in their worship. As we look upon Abel, we see him worshiping. He's bringing a sacrifice or an offering to God, the firstborn of his flock. It's an offering made unto God. Now, I, I, I was just having conversations this week about, about Abel and, and, and reading different authors, what they had to say. And I read some interesting things. One, one author was speculating, and I think he's quite right, that Abel was the first person of faith. Of genuine faith. Because Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden, but they saw God face to face. They knew of his character. They experienced him real time. But Abel being born outside of the garden is the first person who has to take the promises of God and the person of God on faith. He's the first person of faith. And then just randomly, some, some young guy used to be in my youth group many, many years ago put on Facebook this week, because Cain is murdered by his, or Abel is murdered by Cain. And he says, what was it like for Abel when he got to heaven? <laughs> Hello? Is everybody at? It's kind of funny. Yeah. It's my only joke. Laugh it up. There over here. But in this, this, so let's look real quick at this one verse. Verse four, let's break down, uh, let's break down verse, verse four just a little bit. If you're, if you're a note-taking type or an underlining type, I, I, would, I would encourage you to, to do that. But in this one verse, we see that Abel's faith led to, to three things, like three progressive things, if you will. Look at the first part of verse four. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, and so here we see, and I'm borrowing language from other commentators and other thinkers, but we see true and authentic worship here in the first part of verse four. It's true and authentic worship. Abel gave his very best to God. It was the firstborn of his flock, and the fat portions, and God regarded this offering as, as, uh, as acceptable, and, and and he brought this offering to God. Did did it, Cain and Abel, was there an altar that Noah or that Adam and Eve built? Did, did Cain and Abel build an altar? Did God himself build an altar where they were bringing these sacrifices? The, the Bible, as I was sharing with the high school kids this last week, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. It tells us all that we need to know. And there's sometimes we don't have answers to some of these questions. But somehow Abel and Cain knew that, that it was a proper thing to bring an offering unto God. And Abel brings the blood and the fat offerings of the firstborn of his flock. And it was pleasing to God. And I'm mindful as we see this blood offering or this this life blood being shed as an offering unto the Lord. I'm mindful of what the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 9, verse 22. He said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You remember the whole verse? He said, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. But without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Again, it's conjecture, it's speculation, but did Abel come to understand the necessity of blood sacrifice by conversing with his folks who, in the Garden of Eden, when they were awash with their own shame and standing in the presence of God and hiding themselves, when, when, when God compassionately sacrificed an animal and took the skins of the animal to cover the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, did, did Adam and Eve share this story with their sons so they somehow knew that a proper response to sin is, is, is a blood sacrifice? Maybe. But Abel brought his very best. He brought blood. In so doing, he, he, there was a recognition of the severity of sin and a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross. For it was the father who brought his firstborn son to the altar of the cross to pay a, a blood sacrifice that would atone for the sins of humankind. It's a foreshadowing of the cross and the shed blood of Christ is our hope. It's our salvation. But Cain's offering, on the other hand, was devoid of his best. It was was devoid of blood. It was a grain offering, a thanksgiving offering. Perhaps this is an allusion allusion to to Levitical law. We see that grain offerings are acceptable in, in the law later on in the Old Testament, but they're thanksgiving offerings. Sin offerings are always blood sacrifice. It's... Abel understood the severity of sin in what he brought to the Lord. So we see, we see true and authentic worship. We see, we see Abel bringing the whole, the, his very best before God in, in humility and in recognition of his own sin. Second thing we see is we see true and authentic righteousness. And that righteousness results from the true faith of Abel. Look at the second part here of verse, of verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And God had regard for the offering of Abel. And I'm mindful of all the language we have. And we'll see later on in this chapter that it's by faith that God credits righteousness unto the faithful. And then lastly, we have the true and acceptable testimony we see the very last part of our of our verse verse 4c that that through his faith Abel's faith though he died yet he speaks you could say it was a it was a true and acceptable witness even in his death the the witness or the testimony of Abel speaks here's what one commentator writes the story of Abel's faith as recorded in the bible still speaks to generation after generation we're talking about it today we are we're, we're talking about the second generation human and his faithfulness All these thousands of years later, we're talking about it because the faith of Abel still speaks. The mention of Abel's faith indicates that from the very outset of human history, some Old Testament figures were saved by means of faith. And this reminds readers that the faith of those Old Testament saints was effective only because of the future sacrifice of Christ. That animal sacrifice foreshadowed the cross. Okay, so what does it mean then? We're gathered here today to to learn from these case studies in faith. And so what does it mean for you and for me to be faithful in our worship? Think about that. Consider that for a second, would you? I was reminded of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Can I read this to you this morning? Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because of the atoning work of Christ and the righteousness of God that has been given to us through his Son, we can give our very lives as a joyful, gratitude filled act of worship back to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices. I'm even mindful of what David writes in the Old Testament. Psalm 51, David, this great prayer of repentance after he was confronted in his sin, he's, he's speaking to the Lord in this prayer, and he says, he says, "...for you, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God or a broken spirit." A broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. There's a picture there in David's description of worship, and in Paul's description of worship in, in Romans chapter twelve of giving our, us giving the whole of ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. He just wants our lives on the altar saying, God, I am yours. I'm giving my my whole self to you. And we don't need to bring blood sacrifice anymore like Abel because Christ brought that blood sacrifice for us. So now we have the imputed righteousness of Christ all over us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, the author of Hebrews says. This is a picture of worship, and Abel is a case study in worship for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Next, would you look with me at verses 5 and 6? Let's look at the case study of faith in Enoch, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found. And because God had taken him, now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6. And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Now, if I was going to be writing a letter to people about the greatest case studies of faith in all of biblical history, I likely would have skipped over Enoch. I probably wouldn't have paused and double clicked on Enoch because we don't we know so little about him. But his faith, his faith case is so compelling; it makes sense that the author would would double down on Enoch. But for me personally, I probably would have looked to someone else we have a little bit more Old Testament data on. The the story of Enoch's told in just a few verses in chapter 5 of Genesis, verses 21 through 24. Let me read to you what we know of Enoch in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What an interesting phrase. He walked with God, it says twice, in every other genealogy before and after, and says, and then they died. But when we get to the end of the life of Enoch, he didn't die. It says he was not, for God took him, and that taking of God of Enoch is connected to the faith walk of Enoch. Enoch was taken up. It indicates that he did not die, but God took him. And that is so fantastical. Like, what does that even mean? Was there like a flash of lightning? Did he get beamed up like Scotty? Was there a twister and he was like Dorothy getting taken off to another land? Was he just simply not there in the twinkling of an eye? We don't know. But like Elijah, the only other person in the Bible, he never tasted death. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament... And every usage of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews, the quotations, is in the Septuagint, which is why scholars believe that the audience, the original audience of Hebrews were Hellenistic Jews, were were Greek, Jews submerged in Greek culture because the quotations of the Old Testament are all in Greek. So the Septuagint translation of this text does not say that Enoch walked with God, but it says Enoch pleased God. So that word, walk with God, in Hebrew, it's this unique word that, that connotes intimacy and, and friendship. And so the, the the Septuagint translated as saying that this this faith walk of Enoch, it was a walk that pleased God. And the author interprets this for us. And then five times here in verse 5, we, we have this allusion to this unique way in which Enoch departed the earth. Enoch was taken up. He should not see death. He was not found. God had taken him. He was taken. So, I mean... For me personally, I'm like a conspiracy theorist guy who likes strange stories. Like, that's a super interesting story. I want to I I go back in history and see what it looked like when Enoch was zapped out of here. I want to know what that looked like. But the author doesn't focus on the way in which God took Enoch. He doesn't unpack it for us. He's primarily concerned with the way Enoch's life pleased God. He's, he wants us to see the faith of Enoch. And so two times in the Genesis account, we hear this phrase, Enoch walked with God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that it was this faith walk of Enoch that was commended as having pleased God. And so here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. Those who please God are faithful in their walk. Those who please God are faithful in their worship, and those who please God are faithful in their walk. And we know that walking with someone is a a sign of intimacy. There's friendship. There's a partnership. For years, my wife and I have coached track, and when we were in Idaho, or Wisconsin, rather, we coached track. Becky was a great coach. I was just there to cheer on the kids. And, but I had a really good relationship with the students. I loved the kids. And we had this head coach who was a really cool Christian guy, and anytime there was a kid on our track team that was going through a hard time or needed some pastoring or some shepherding or some friendship, John DeWitt, our head coach, would say, Hey, Paul, take at practice, why don't you take so-and-so for a walk? And I knew what that meant. That meant I was to tap this kid on the shoulder to pull him out of practice and I was to, I was to care for him. Mom and dad are getting a divorce. He got in trouble. He's getting kicked out of school. He's ineligible. Whatever the issue may be, the head coach was smart enough to say, hey, go minister to this kid. And so i would go for a walk. And it was a sign of intimacy. I would walk side by side with these kids and talk, talk to me. Tell me what's going on in your world. And we would talk and we would walk and we would pray. You, you have that picture in your mind. That there's relationship connected to walking. It's an intimate thing. It's a beautiful thing. The author of Hebrews, he's focusing on Enoch here. And and we don't have tons of information, but we have just enough. We have enough information about Enoch to to understand what it is God wants us to know. As we we look into the life of Enoch, we we begin to see what is the substance of this God-pleasing faith walk. And the first thing we see in the first part of verse 6 is that Enoch's God-pleasing faith began with the fact that he had a belief in the existence of God. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Secondly, Enoch's God-pleasing faith rested in his belief that God rewards the faithful. For whoever would draw near to God must believe... dot 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 that he rewards those who seek him. So there's this belief in the existence of God that Enoch possessed, and there's this belief in the reward of God toward the faithful that Enoch believed. So what is a faith that pleases God? What does that look like? What does a God-pleasing faith walk look like in your life and in mine? What does it mean to have faith in the existence of God? Today, for you and me, gathered here today. What does it mean for you and for you and me to have faith in the existence of God? There was in Enoch in in, in as we reflect upon our life, there's this call to a deep awareness that I'll just say that He is. And when we come to awareness that there is God, that He exists, that He is, it means we have to come come to terms with the fact that we are not. To acknowledge that there is God, it means that we we have to, to acknowledge His grandness and His bigness simultaneously means we have to acknowledge our smallness and our finiteness. And that's hard for many people. We have to come to terms with the fact that there is one who is greater. There's one who has ultimate authority. And there is an authority that ultimately you and I are then held accountable. We are not God or gods. He is. And as I mentioned last week, even the demons believe that he is. It's ironic to me that we have the smartest people on planet Earth today, who people who claim to be the smartest, that deny the existence of God in prideful humanity, But demons of hell, the very enemies of God, they believe and they shudder. One author puts it this way. He says, There are no doubt evil spirits of atheism, demons who have influenced and danced on the graves of atheists. But all demons are thoroughgoing monotheists and Trinitarian to boot. So believing God is, is only the beginning. So what's next? Well, what does it mean to have faith in the existence of God? It's not just believing that God is. It's belief in the God of the Bible. This unique and, and special revelation of God that we have been given in his living word. It means belief that, that this God that we read of in the Old Testament, we have, we have to believe in this great God that we read of in these 39 books of the Old Testament. We believe in this creator God who spoke the cosmos into existence, who, who formed planet Earth and, and, and separated the, the, the night from the, the daytime and, and who, who separated the waters from land to water, who, who, who created the creeping animals that crawl along the surface of the earth, and the fish, and the birds of the air, and the livestock, and who fashioned humankind in his own image. We have to believe in this creator God. We also believe in this God of, of miracles, and wonders, and signs, and power that we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The God who sent floodwaters waters. The floodwaters of divine justice coursing over the face of the earth. We believe in this God who delivered the Israelites from Egyptian captivity through these miraculous plagues that swept over the land, who revealed himself in a burning bush to Moses. We believe in this God who parted the Red Sea, who guided the people of God through the desert and the wilderness for 40 years by a pillar of cloud, by day and fire, by night. He stopped up the Jordan River. He caused the walls of Jericho to fall. He he allowed his people to prosper. He went before them. He dwelled amongst them. We believe in that God. We aren't to have some generic faith in some generic God that's somewhere out there in the ether. No, we are called to believe in the God of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the name of God is Yahweh. This name refers to the self-existence of God. It's linked to how God described himself in Exodus 3, verse 14, as he's speaking to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you'll say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So the very name of God, Yahweh, it reflects his being. The God of the Bible is the only self-existent being, the only self-sufficient being, only God has life in and of himself. And so we believe in this massive God of the Old Testament, but we also believe in the massive God of the New Testament as revealed to us in his son Christ Jesus. I love how one author puts it. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, it is not a revelation of a greater God, but a greater revelation of God. Remember how the book of Hebrews begins? Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He is God's final word. And perhaps nowhere else in the scriptures do we see it more clearly than in the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Colossians chapter 1. I want want us to read through a few verses together. I just think it's so rich. going to be verses 15 through 20. It's right after Philippians, before 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, somewhere in the middle of the New Testament. And in this section of Colossians here in the first chapter, the apostle Paul is writing, and and he's speaking of the preeminence of Christ. He's concerned here, Paul is concerned here, that his audience, that they see the ultimate superiority of Christ, and the fact that he, in his superiority, is fully sufficient and He surpasses all others. I want to read to you Colossians 1, 15 through 20. In speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is... And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's meditate on those verses for just a few minutes as we think about this massive God who has revealed himself to us in his Son. Last week, if you were here, we paused and we meditated a little bit on the grandeur of the universe. I'm not an expert on any of these things, but we considered our, our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, some 400 billion stars in our own galaxy, one of two trillion galaxies in the universe. We considered the size of the universe, 93 billion light years across. We considered the 10 octillion stars in our universe, more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. And Colossians tells us, That Jesus made it all. All things were created by him, it says in verse 16. Each of those 10 octillion stars that span across the 93 billion light years of our universe were made by Jesus. Down to the most minuscule of details, every single atom, the smallest of small and the largest of large were all made by him. He's not only creator, but he's also sustainer, Paul tells us. Verse 17 tells us that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. If Jesus just spoke the word, it would all come apart. But he holds it together. And all of this exists for him. Look at the end of verse 16 in Colossians 1 there. All, were, all things were created through him and for him. can Hughes use he says that all creation is moving toward its goal in Him, in Jesus. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Everything in creation, history, and spiritual reality is moving to Him and for Him. And He's not just this all powerful Creator God who thunders away from afar. No, He's this personal God who took on flesh in our midst. And Paul talks about this in verses 19 and 20. Listen again what the, passion, what the passage says about the love of God in Christ. For in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I'm mindful of the words of Jesus in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. It was Christ's love for you and for me that compelled him to go to the cross where he made peace by the blood of the cross. We can be reconciled back to God. And God so loved the world that he gave his son. The creator and sustainer of the universe chose the cross. Man. He did so so that he could reconcile all things to himself. So that he can reconcile you and me to himself. And it was his love that compelled him to do so. John 15, 12. My command is this, says Jesus. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love, has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so, this is the God in whose existence we are to believe. This is the God in whose existence we are to believe. Secondly, God, Enoch models for us that a God-pleasing faith rests in the belief that God also rewards the faithful. Look at that language there in verse 6. For whoever would draw near to him must believe he rewards those who seek him. Enoch's faith manifested in a God pleasing walk. He was sure that God would reward those who walked in such a manner. And the year that, that Enoch's son Methuselah died, uh, uh, Methuselah, Enoch's son, lived 969 years. The year that Methuselah died is the year that the, the great flood washed over the earth. And so God sent the judgment waters of his wrath over the earth, as Genesis 6 tells us, he, because he saw how wicked, how great the wicked of the human race had become in all the earth, and that the humanity had every inclination and every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so, no doubt Enoch knew of this. No doubt the backdrop of Enoch's life was an increasingly corrupted humanity. No doubt. No doubt he had to have this faith walk in the midst of a corrupt and vile existence, and people around him who could care less about the glory of God. But Enoch had a faith walk that was pleasing to God. Jude, the author of Jude, he he actually quotes Enoch for us in Jude 14 and 15. Enoch is quoted as saying, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness And of all the defiant words words of ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there's this picture that that Enoch knew of the judgment of God against the wickedness of mankind. And though Enoch lived in dark times, though Enoch spoke of the judgment of God, he realized the sinful gravity of his culture. And he walked faithfully with God in the midst of unfaithfulness. For 300 years plus, he walked faithfully with God. He looked with future-pointing hope to the promises of God and he faithfully walked with God and he received God's reward. What was God's reward? Well, he was taken to heaven. He didn't have to taste death. He believed in the faithfulness of God and that God rewarded the faithful, and he was right. And God was so pleased that he took him. And Enoch never had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death personally. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus to Martha in John chapter 11. Do you remember this? Her brother Lazarus dies and she's lamenting her brother's death and she's having this hard conversation with Jesus about her brother's death and, and Jesus speaking about what he came to offer. He says in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever believes in me and lives in me will never die do you believe this? This beautiful picture of Enoch being snatched from the jaws of death and escaping death is a foreshadowing of the life we have in Christ. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus says this to Martha. He asks her, do you believe this? He asks us today, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What great motivation for us to walk with God. We're to walk in faith with him. We're to Walk in such a way that God is pleased by our faith. Walk in a corrupt and decaying and terrible world. I don't need to convince you of the terribleness of our world. We're to walk with God. He walks with us in intimacy, right by our side. We don't walk alone. Even when it's the valley of the shadow of death, as the good shepherd, he walks with us, and he guides us, and he protects us, and he's with us. And we're we're to walk with him. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we will have the light of life. Amen. You know, if you look through the epistles in the New Testament, Paul and, and John and... I guess Paul and John, I'm thinking of the, these epistles that they wrote, they're, they're filled with this language, this metaphorical language of our faith journey. You've probably seen this language as you read through the New Testament letters. I want you to just listen to some of the language we have in the New Testament about what a faithful walk with God looks like. 2 Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Romans, we are to walk in newness of life. Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walk properly as in daytime, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Ephesians, walk in the good works that God has prepared for you beforehand as his masterpiece. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave up his life for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Walk as children of light. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Philippians. Walk according to the example that has been set by the faithful saints who've gone before us. Colossians. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. John's letters. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Whoever says he abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Walk in the truth just as we are commanded by the Father. This is love, not that we walk according to the commandments. This is love that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Walk in the truth. I mean, the language of the New Testament is filled with this picture of a faithful walk. And I just sometimes think we we, we think so metaphorically about this, and it gets confusing. And what does it mean to walk in faith? And, he, and you know, I'm thinking about our little journey yesterday up uh, to uh, up to Pilate Rock, and and as we're getting ready to go, I'm talking to the people in the in the the parking lot, and I'm saying, hey, listen, we're going to be on this journey, and there's these switchbacks. And you've got to be careful that when you hit a switchback, you're watching, because it's easy to get off path. And it's easy to find yourself in the weeds, and you're going to get lost. And so pay attention on the switchbacks. And I think in life, sometimes, we, we walk in ways where we drift from God. We're walking, but we're not walking in faith. And so I think the best way to determine how your walk is, is right now to ex- examine the, the totality of your life, Look at the situations and the circumstances surrounding you at this very minute and, and look at your feet. And the path that your feet are on is the path upon which you're walking. Where are the feet of your life today? To what are you walking in today? Where, where, where does the, the, the journey that you're on and the, and the footfalls that you're, you're taking step after step, where is that leading you today? We're called to this beautiful walk of faith that is pleasing to God. Because without, without faith, it's, it's, it's impossible to please God. Lastly, let's look at that last verse, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that came by faith. So the author is drawing from the life of Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. And here's the last thing I would encourage you to write down. Those who please God are faithful in their work. Those who please God are faithful in their walk, they're faithful in their worship, and they're faithful in their work. And who knows how long it took Noah to build the ark, 120 years, less, no one really agrees. Different people interpret that text a little bit differently, but it took a long time. This, this ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, one and a half football fields long, a football field wide, and four and a half stories tall, it was huge. How long did it take him to complete that work? How many years, how many, how, many, how many bouts of spiritual doubt washed over Noah as he was laboring under the weight of, of cypress timbers and, and, and laboring under the weight of accusations and just mean-spirited uh, persecution at the, the mouths of the people from the culture within which he lived. Can you imagine what, what that work was like? But he was operating under the word of God. God said to him, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race. And we read in Genesis 6 verse 8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was this one glimmer of hope in a hopelessly dark world. All the men of the earth were corrupt and wicked and vile, but there was this one man who had a faith that was pleasing to God and God recognized it amidst the sea of wickedness. And the author of Hebrews tells us that God warned Noah concerning the events as yet unseen, and so we know what God warned him. He's, God told Noah He's going to send floodwaters over the earth. He gave Noah instructions. Here's what you got. Here's what working in faith looks like. And your salvation is connected to this work I'm giving you to do. You're going to construct this ark. You're going to operate in faith, and some things are going to happen eventually, where this ark is going to be vital for your survival, for your salvation. Some have speculated that that God didn't just speak specifically to Noah, that that Noah was just the only one who chose to heed the word of God. And he operated for decades and decades and decades and decades on faith, believing that God would send floodwaters, believing that God would save Noah and his family through this ark. And he didn't just sit around. I mean, I was talking to Thomas this week, one of the guys that's in my small group, and, and, and that was just something he said that just really struck me. He's like, can you imagine if Noah had received the revelation of God the, the, the instruction of God for salvation and then just sort of sat on a park bench for the next hundred years and just talked about it. Waxed eloquent, waxed theological, talked about spiritual matters but never put his hand to actual work. The implication in Thomas's language was that sometimes we're tempted to do that. Sometimes we love to stuff our heads with tons of theology but if it doesn't manifest in an outward working, a faithful working for God, then what's it, what's it worth? Is it really faith? If there's no if there's no outward obedience connected to the beautiful things God has revealed to us. Noah operated on the conviction of things not seen for decades. God said it was going to rain. The floodwaters were going to sweep over the earth. Many speculate that Noah never saw rain. He was believing in something he'd never ever seen, water falling from the sky. However, Noah didn't just sit around. He went to work. Can you imagine the scoffing? As he climbed up and down the scaffolding on the outside of his ark, can you imagine the the passerbys? Can you imagine the murmurs and the gossip and the accusations he had to labor under for decades and decades and decades? But he was faithful, and his faith manifested in obedience to God's word. Genesis 6.22 tells us that Noah did all that God commanded him. It was a long obedience in the same direction for Noah. What was that like? How hard was that? How many days did he just be? Te- did he, was he just tempted to give up? How much did it cost him financially? How much did it cost him relationally, socially? Can you imagine the steadfastness that must have took for this man for all these years to stay focused on the work God had given him to do? I like what one author says. He says, "Faith always obeys. It obeys with a reverential heart in ways eminently practical. True faith always acts." bringing this down to where we live, we understand that that there's no way Noah could truly believe that the flood was coming without doing what God told him to do to save his family. Therefore, we must ask ourselves if we truly believe God's word. If we truly believe that he's coming in judgment one day. Noah operated on the belief that something was going to happen that he had never saw, that he had never seen. That God was going to send something down from heaven that was going to bring judgment and that God had given him a means of salvation. We believe similarly. We believe that God is coming down in his son Christ, that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And he's given us the means of salvation. He's given us the gospel. He's given us work to do in the name of the gospel as the church. We're not building arcs. We are sharing the good news of Jesus with the world around us that they might have salvation. And people may call us fools and idiots. They may laugh at us and scoff at us for believing such a sensational thing, but we believe that Christ is coming back. And time is short, and He is being patient that none should perish. And we're to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel message of Jesus Christ that they may be saved. This is the call that God has placed on the church. Ultimately, Noah was saved by faith. Noah's faithful life manifested in faithful work. That was the means of salvation. So what does it mean for you and for me today? So, we see these three things. We see those who please God are faithful in their worship, faithful in their walk, and faithful in their work. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And in each case, whether it be Abel, who was murdered by a vile brother Cain, or Enoch, who was living in a corrupt generation. Or Noah, who watched the, the justice of God sweep over a corrupt world. Each man lived in the backdrop of a dark and depraved and wicked world. I mean, Enoch, or Abel's parents, were the first to sin. They brought death and sin to all of human race. So each man had to choose faithfulness in the face of that. This is, our, this is where we live today. We live in a, a, a broken world that is wicked and the conversations I have week in and week out with, with the people of God is just one that just feels almost hopeless at times. It's like, man, how much worse can it get? How, how, how corrupt, how gross, how depraved, how perverse can our world become? And we're called to walk by faith in this world, to live by faith in this world. Each man had to choose in the face of this dark backdrop, they had to choose how they were going to worship, how they were going to walk, how they were going to work. And we're faced with the same thing today. We're faced with the same. This is this is your three case studies in faith. I don't know which one might apply to your life more succinctly today, but listen. May you hear by the Spirit of God this invitation, this call to walk in a way that pleases God. May your may the way you worship, the way you walk, and the way you work be pleasing to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the privilege you give us every week of gathering here and studying your word and being convicted. Uh-uh, in our in our spirit about what it means for us to respond in obedience god i god i'm mindful of the men and women who are gathered today me included as we as we sit under the weight of these words god would you god by your spirit would you would you allow us to understand and see what it means for us to be faithful in our worship god would you help us understand what it means for us today to be faithful in the way in which we walk with you and walk through this life god would you God, especially in our, our work. I think of what it means for us to, to be faithful to you in our work. And God, we all we all work. And God help us understand that what it looks like for our work to be an offering of, over to you, a, a faithful offering through which you're pleased. God, help us to know what it means that without faith it's impossible to please you. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.